I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Terry O'Reilly joins me again, the broadcaster and the winner of hundreds of international advertising awards is a new book out, My Biggest Mistake, Epic Fails and Silver Linings. It's got a lot of stories in it told in Mr. O'Reilly's inimitable style. They highlight the power in screwing up, whether by accident or carelessness. Mistakes may cost one's job or one's credibility, but they can be overcome by confronting them. That's the lesson derived from people who've fallen from grace, like Rob Lowe or the American anchor Brian Williams. Sometimes famous brands or bands can come about because of a mistake. Another story in the book is about Serge Savard, whose hockey career nearly ended prematurely because of an oversight. Fiberglass is pink and done quite well as a product because of it due to an error. And Seth MacFarlane slept in and missed a flight on September 11, 2001. I'll talk to Terry about the lessons in his book as well as share some of the incredible stories therein. Terry O'Reilly's two previous books, The Age of Persuasion and This I Know, were bestsellers. He appeared on this program with both in 2009 and 2017. His popular and award-winning radio programs are O'Reilly on Advertising, The Age of Persuasion, and Under the Influence have been broadcast on CBC Radio since 2005, and uh, the podcasts have been downloaded over 40 million times. Visit terryoreilly.ca for more. This new book is published by Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Terry O'Reilly. Mr. O'Reilly, good morning. Hello, Joe. How are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm very good. I'm sure you get this all the time when when people um, re- read not uh, you'll probably get this when when they read this new book but your two previous books as well um, that they can't read you without hearing your voice. I I do hear that a lot. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, well, I you know like any writer, I guess I try and write the way I would just say it. Mm. I'm just trying to really and I, I'm I really. I'm not a fancy writer, Joe. I just, and that's probably my advertising background, just trying to make something really understandable. So I just try and do it in plain talk, just really simple plain talk. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, I, I couldn't shake your voice as I was reading the book, and um, I enjoyed it. I, I think I enjoyed it a lot more because of that. You know what? I've, I've started to get emails from people, which is, this is something I never got historically. Mm-hmm. Which is people saying they'll they'll buy one of my books and buy the audio book, mm. so they'll fall, they'll listen to me read along with them, which I never thought anybody would ever buy both right, right. versions of a book. So that is starting to happen, which is interesting. Yeah. So, so the premise of the book is that that if um, you know if, if if there is something that happens, so one of these epic fails, say, um, there is a silver lining. But you know, in the midst of it all. Um, a lot of us can't see, you know, something good coming out of anything bad. Um, why is that? Well, in this book, I really went after two kinds of mistakes. One is when someone made a catastrophic career decision where they lost their job, their livelihood, their sanity, their credibility, but it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them. And then the second kind of mistake I went after was when somebody made a seemingly tiny or seemingly insignificant mistake, but it ended up turning into something big or a breakthrough or, or a, you know, a, a new band or a new brand. And I think what happens is when it's a, 
When it's a small mistake, you don't really notice. Mm-hmm. But it, when it's a big mistake, you can get lost in it. You can be defeated by it. You could feel like running away. But the lesson in this book and the lesson from all these various people that I wrote about is if you choose not to run away, if you stand in the middle of the problem, that if you peel it, I say if you peel the problem or the mistake like a banana, the solution will be sitting at the center of that mistake. Like the opportunity to come out of that mistake will be at the heart of the mistake. And you see that over and over again in the stories I've written. So I guess the the big inspiring message is when that happens to you, don't run away. Don't feel completely defeated. Sit in the middle of the problem and, and, and just try and ferret out where the opportunity is because there is almost always an opportunity to have a, a rebirth or a reinvention or to reinvent yourself out of that mistake. Yeah, yeah. So losing a job is tough, um, but but losing credibility is a lot more tougher. And um, you write about Brian Williams, for example, from NBC yep. News. And th- there was a situation where um, his credibility was shot and, and he confronted um, what the problem was, didn't he? Well, he... He was kind of mystified by it. I think to this day, yeah. he doesn't really know why he... Because he told us, if you think about it, he had the biggest platform in North America, which sure. is being the yeah. anchorman of, the, of NBC News. He told that story many times correctly. And then slowly over time, the details started to change in his mind. So there's, I can't believe he was trying to, to fabricate a story because he'd said it publicly too many times. I think it literally started to change in his mind. And I think that happens to a lot of us. And I mentioned it in the book where, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has that theory that, you know, memories are are not infallible. They're, in fact, fallible. And I even give an example in my own life where I thought I remembered something correctly. And then when I double-checked with someone else, I had not remembered it correctly at all. Mm. And it was a big, it was when the space shuttle uh, exploded. So it was a very, you know, seismic day, but I had remembered the, my particular details incorrectly. So it can happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, as, as you write in the book, and, and as we, as people of us who follow the news, um, he's managed to, he's not, not gotten back to where he was, but he's reinvented himself, hasn't he? Well, <clears throat> I make a hypothesis about Brian Williams in my book because. If you follow his story, he wanted to leave the news and, ho- and host a talk show. He right. even tried to get Le- you know Letterman's slot when he left and Leno's slot when he left because That's right, nobody yeah. would give him that job. But he-, he always wanted to host a talk show. So when this happened to him, when he lost his anchorman position and then he was you know suspended and he lost his salary and then he was off the air for I think it was seven or eight months. When he came back, he got what he wanted, which was very interesting, right? So even though he'd lost his credibility and lost the anchorman's job, I think he's happier now because he's hosting a talk show. He's really, really good at it. He happens to be hosting a political talk show in probably the the most you know controversial, hottest political era we've been in in decades. Mm -hmm. I actually wonder if he's happier. I think he is. Yeah. Um, So someone else that you write about in the book is Rob Lowe. And for a lot of people um, uh, nowadays, they know Rob Lowe from from television drama or or from sitcoms. Um, for a lot of us who are older, we remember him in films, and um, and then uh, as you remind us in the book, a, a sex tape that had come out right in in the eighties, and and 
when you talk about choosing not to run away from controversy, I mean, he's he's a, he's a good case in that, in that he confronted it head on, going on Saturday Night Live, and 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 after that, I guess, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember now after the the sex tape scandal, um, his career, I guess, did hit a slump, but. He he managed to get away from that, didn't he? From from sort of the brat pack movies that he made in the in the eighties. Yeah, very true. He's kind of the poster boy for the theme of this book. In that, as you say, Joe, he a sex tape came out. It was made public. It was humiliating. It was one of the one of the first sex tapes, celebrity sex tapes that actually came out. Um, <clears throat> he did lose all his credibility. He did, you know, the phone stopped ringing. He stopped getting job offers. <clears throat> but then. Um, Saturday Night Live made an offer. Of course, Lauren Michaels wanted to poke fun at the controversy. Mm-hmm. And everybody in, in Rob Lowe's camp told him not to do it. His manager, his agent, his family said, don't do it. Like, don't let them poke fun at this. This is too, this is already too traumatic an event. But he chose to do it. And he, he poked fun at himself in Saturday Night Live and they had fun with him in some skits. But what that led to, again, we saw a comedic side of Rob Lowe, because really, mm. if you think of his Brad Pack movies, he was kind of more the heartthrob, dramatic sure. guy. Yeah. Suddenly, we saw him in a humorous situation, and then he met Lorne Michaels, and he met Mike Myers through that Saturday Night Live uh, hosting job. And then, of course, he got hired into Wayne's World and other Lorne Michaels vehicles, and then he landed Parks and Rec years later. It was comedy that resuscitated his career, and that would not have happened, and Rob Lowe has said this, that would not have happened had he not taken that Saturday Night Live hosting job. Yeah. So the it, so the controversy actually gave him a second career that he's still riding to this day, which is comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the um, we've lived through COVID over the last eighteen months or so. Um, for some people, it might be too soon to find a silver lining in 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 all of this. Right. But uh, what have you? What, what are you looking at in terms of of say something good coming out of this pandemic? It's so hard to say, Joe, because I feel like we're still in the middle of it. But yeah. I, I will say this: I think a lot of people feel this way because I certainly do. I have a, an enormous reappreciation of travel. Mm. and of of just getting together with people like i miss travel so much in our life right now in our lives right now i miss getting together just at a restaurant with friends which we have not done so just those two things alone and i'm sure there are many but those two things alone that re- i don't think i'll ever look at travel the same way again or ever take it for granted mm. again or like i say sitting at a table with 10 or 12 people just really enjoying each other's company, which we would just take for granted. You know, can we organize this? Let's get together. That'll sure. be fun. But now it's much more, and I don't think I can ever shake that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, after all these years that you've spent in advertising and, and trying to figure out why the public will like something, I mean, it, it's still a mystery, isn't it? it well, there. There definitely is an X factor when it comes to marketing. It's the same with movies. It's the same with books. It's, it's you know, you can have a hit movie and then you do a sequel with all the same cast and crew and it's a failure. There's an X factor in, in just hitting that magical thing that people really love. So I think that extends to just about every art form. It's, it's very difficult. And I think you're like, you know, an ad person is kind of like a baseball, uh, uh, a baseball player in that, 
you know, the best baseball players in the world have, you know, a 300 batting average. And I think, uh, and they, that means they only hit three out of every 10 balls, right? right so yeah. I think ad people are kind of in the same, in the same realm that you, you have a lot of successes and then you have a lot of failures because it's, it's very difficult to stand out in this world with any brand. I mean, the, the amount of tra- the, um, channels, social media, the clutter, there's all sorts of things standing in the way of getting your brand out there, let alone what your advertising idea is. It's just actually getting somebody to see that idea. Yeah, and 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 that's what's surprising. Whether it's an election result or or the, the box office gross, you know, at the end of a weekend, um, or um, just ads that you see on TV, it, it, it's surprising. It's 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 unexpected. It's inexplicable sometimes what the public likes. No, that's right. I mean, yeah. it, it, that's exactly right. I mean, even some of the reality shows, which sure. you know, you might roll your eyes at, and but take a look at the ratings on some of those shows. They're yeah. uh, unbelievable. So yeah, you never quite know. But here's the thing: I think a great brand, like a great ad, like a great book, like a great movie, should be aimed at a specific target, not aimed at everybody. Mm. And once you can define who your target market is, then I think that thing has a greater chance of succeeding. Because you will tailor how you market it, you will tailor the tonality of it, you will you will in, express the values of that thing to people who share those values. <clears throat> so if you're aiming at everybody, you'll fail. But if you're aiming at a specific segment of the marketplace or, or of the public, you have a much greater degree of of, uh, of getting through. You write in the book. Uh, you tell the story of, of Kathleen King and her bake shop. Yeah. Um, and um, the the failure uh, at one point uh, when she she brings in partners and then they, they that eventually you know, they fall out and, and it's a big business uh, debacle. Um, yeah. But but she manages to to um, come back with a, a different uh, product and a different uh, uh, shop on her own and become wildly successful with that. Um, there, there really is something satisfying as I'm reading that story. Uh, about success and and prevailing at the end, or just getting you know their comeuppance, seeing someone get the, get their comeuppance, right. you know. There, yeah, there is that because she was really taken advantage of in that yeah. business opportunity and had to start from scratch all over again, even though she was already a success because she lost her company to her two partners. But you notice in that story, Kathleen says one of the biggest lessons she learned when she peeled that problem like a banana was. She she couldn't be so emotionally invested in it. Mm. Once she made that decision to start again and to not be so emotionally invested in it, meaning she could be detached and be more objective about her decisions and objective about her goals, that suddenly she was freed of that. And that, that's when her business really exploded. And that's when she sold her business for hundreds of millions of dollars. But she had to, she said, I would have never had that success without my failure that she realized she was too emotionally invested, and that's why it was so painful and why it, did, it went so sideways. But when she started her second business with that learning, then she succeeded beyond her wildest expectations. Yeah. I'm sitting here in uh, my office at home here in, in Vancouver, and um, behind me is a DVD shelf with, with things. And I, I, as I was reading the book, it reminded me that on that shelf, I have the first two seasons of Family Guy, which right. uh, I bought. Right. And I did. I have to this day have not seen. I've, I, I took the plastic off, but I've never watched an, an episode of the thing. <laughs> right, right. But it, your, your book reminds me about how well um, 
those DVDs were marketed. I mean, everybody has those, don't they? I mean, I see them at garage sales all the time. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, the success of Seth MacFarlane. Um, there's a lot of luck involved, and, and not just with, with Family Guy and, and everything that's happened to him, but going back to 9-11 itself. Well, he, he is one of the great stories in that book. So as you, as you say, Joe, so Seth MacFarlane has created an animation empire. It's not a small industry or small company. He has an empire. He is yeah. one of the highest-paid showrunners in Hollywood. He's had a show on the air for decades now. He ha- I mean, he does movies. He, sing, he, he records albums. He, he's this, he is an industry unto himself. But none of that would have happened if he had not made a mistake back in September of 2001, which is he had, a, he had a small amount of success back then. And he was going, he flew back to his college in Rhode Island to give a talk about his success. It was, it was, he was just starting out, but he had some success in Hollywood. He gave his talk at his college. Then that night he went out drinking with the faculty and some of the staff and got very drunk. The next morning he was flying back to Los Angeles, but he was hungover and he overslept as a result. Mm. And he got to the airport too late to catch his flight. So the mistake was that he got drunk, he was hungover, and he missed his flight. So he decided to book a flight two hours later, and he went and tried to sleep it off in the lounge at the airport. And, of course, he got woken up a few minutes later by all this activity in the lounge. And and when he looked up at the television screen, he realized the flight he had missed was the first plane that hit the Twin Tower from Boston. Yeah. So if he had not made that mistake, you can call it luck, but it, it, it's really, uh, it is serendipity, but it is the, the result of a mistake of him oversleeping that he missed that flight. Yeah. And we would not have any of the Seth MacFarlane empire today if he had made that flight. Indeed, indeed. Well, how do you collect these stories? I mean, and, and not just for this book, but for, for, for the radio shows as well. Well, I am a story hunter, Joe, so I'm always, always on the hunt for stories. So I'm always reading. I've got four or five books on the go at any time. I, I subscribe to a lot of magazines and periodicals. I'm always online hunting. Even when I go out and give talks in the pre-pandemic world, of mm-hmm. course, you know, I'll go give talks somewhere to a marketing uh, event, and afterwards, people will come up and say hello, and they'll tell me the greatest stories, and they'll, you know, they'll tell me this great story that happened in their career. I'll remember that story after the event. I'll go to my hotel room and I'll write it down in an email and send it to myself. And I collect these stories, and I may not even use that story, Joe, sure. for five years, but when I do use that story, it is the perfect story for that show. So I just collect. I have files, and I have cross referencing systems where I could I have all my stories all collected in one place waiting for a theme where I can apply them it's such a delight when I read my biggest mistake um, when you're talking about hockey or music because you're obviously a hockey fan a music aficionado right um, because some of these stories you got firsthand and it, it's it's such fun to see that you as a fan telling us the story and, and, and seeing sort of the, how, how you got it as well. Yeah. Well, the search of art story is, 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 is the classic one in that book that just so interesting that I was reading Ken Dryden's book mm-hmm. about, called Scotty, about Scotty Bowman, and he mentioned just in a line or two on the way to another point that, the, that Scotty Bowman had almost 
thrown away Serge Savard's career when Serge was just like an 18-year-old hockey hopeful that he he had, for, you know, it's, it's, it's detailed, but, you know, the, the Habs would pick 12 players from the junior Habs to bring forward, and uh, and that was it. And if he didn't make that list of 12, you would never, you did not make the Montreal Canadiens farm team. He he forgot to tell Serge he had been cut from the team. Mm. So the next season, Serge showed up into Montre- in Montreal from 300 kilometers away because he lived up north in Quebec and, and called up Scotty and said, "I'm here for the season. You know, where do where do I where am I staying? Can you send me some money?" And Serge said, "Oh my God." We forgot to tell him he didn't make the team. Mm-hmm. So they went to uh, their boss and uh, the great Sam Pollock and him and Cliff Fletcher, Scotty and Cliff Fletcher, and begged that, uh, begged Sam Pollock to let them keep Serge Savard on the team, even though he'd been cut. And Sam was not happy about it. But even in that moment, you know, it's interesting. They saved Serge's career in that moment. He became a Montreal Canadian. He became a huge Montreal Canadian. He became the captain of the team. And then became the general manager of the Habs. Like, think about how that mistake, almost all of that would not have happened. And then the funny bookend on that, Joe, was when he retired from the Canadians as a player, they forgot to file his retirement papers (laughs) on the other end. So suddenly he was a free agent without knowing, and then he got picked up by, by Winnipeg. So he so ended up playing a couple more seasons, even he, even though he wanted to retire. So the Canadians had screwed up and made a mistake at both ends of his career, which is so funny. Yeah, and anyway, Ken Dryden, I contacted Ken. He was very lovely. He connected me with. He said, "I'll get Scotty to call you." And he got and Scotty Bowman called me, and then I got connected to Cliff Fletcher, and then I got connected to Serge Savard. They were all lovely, lovely folks that were just so happy to help with the book. Yeah, it's just so great to, to as a I'm not a hockey fan myself, but to see a hockey fan um yeah. put this all together and and get this all together is it's just it's just wonderful to read and, and and delightful as I said. Um you know everyone loves you you on the radio um O'Reilly on advertising the age of persuasion under the influence now. Um Early on, did you have a goal in terms of what your radio work would be about? I mean, I, I can see that, that um, perhaps you wanted us, the listener, um, to be better as a consumer, as a citizen even. I mean, was that something that crossed your mind early on when you, when you started radio? That was the exact way we pitched the show to CBC originally. So the, our pitch, in a nutshell, to CBC was that Advertising is kind of like architecture. It's everywhere in your life, yet most people despise it. They think it's intrusive and annoying. But the reality is that advertising is a fascinating industry because it's the study of human nature. And nobody studies human nature closer than the advertising industry. And because I was a working ad man in the trenches, I wasn't a journalist or an academic or a pundit. I was a working ad man in the trenches. I said to CBC, I have access and what I want to do is bring CBC listeners, you know, behind the curtain. I want I want to bring them on a on a I want to give them a backstage pass to the closed world of advertising, so they can see how it works and why certain decisions are made and and how certain things are made to persuade you to do this or that. And that was really the pitch to CBC. Yeah, and and how has it been over the years in terms of your your advertising work? Has has the radio work been a hindrance at all? <laughs> Um, that's a very interesting question, Joe. Um, I don't think so. It's a funny thing. When you, when you really analyze your own career, 
and what you do for a living and your skill set in the industry at large, it can, it can hamper you. You can get too inside baseball on it. And I'm sure I had those moments. But the flip side to that is I also had a greater understanding of the business through all my investigations of it and especially the history of the business. And, you know, when you, for example, when you learn how torture tests began in advertising, how people needed to see something on television, prove that it actually worked and mm. why the, the brand felt it had to do that. When you have that understanding of that, when you bring a torture test into the 21st century, you can actually use that learning if we, when you learn where something started and why. So it probably made me a better ad writer over time because I had more knowledge and more wisdom I could draw from. And at the same time, there were moments where you could be over-analytical and then there's paralysis by analysis sets in. But overall, I'd say it helped me. Mm -hmm. um, you, you dedicate the book um, to the worst boss you ever had. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you who that was. Right. But um, uh, it got me thinking about what you're like as a boss because you write that um, they taught you what not to do. Well, I worked early in my career, I worked for a company that was really not a great creative company. They really didn't, they, could, they didn't know how to approve great creative. They didn't know how to inspire great creative. They really kept us creative people under their thumb. I stayed there for two years. It was too long, and I hated it, Joe, when I was in the middle of it. I just, I had to drag my caboose into work every day. I just hated it. But in hindsight, those two years taught me so much because when I started my own company, it, I realized slowly over time that I had learned so many lessons at that other company that would help me build a better company. So I knew how to treat creative people. I knew how to really, you know, look for the the, the, the most creative idea, not the safest idea, and how to and how to worry about a client's. Uh, uh, work and the client's product and the client's advertising, which that other company never did. They were really just trying to get stuff in and out. So it was really, in, in hindsight, one of the best lessons I learned about running a creative company. Because running a creative company is different than running like a, a, a garage, a mechanics garage, or pick another industry. A mm -hmm. creative company is a very, very interesting and, and, uh, and different animal. So I learned so much there and did not realize it at the time. Yeah, um, I probably asked you this before um, in, in the uh, times that you've, been, you've graciously appeared on, on the podcast here. Um, but who's your favorite character on Mad Men? <laughs> it would have to be Roger Stone. Sterling, not Roger Stone. Roger, um, I've got Sterling. Roger Sterling. Yeah. Roger Stone. Yeah, I've got a Trump guy in my brain. <laughs> yeah, Roger Sterling was was my absolute favorite because. He was just so amusing. Yeah, he was, yeah. you know, funny, and he was laid back, and he rarely got upset about anything. And he, he, he had this je ne sais quoi that was just hilarious to me. I have to say, I like that. I liked that show, Joe, because whoever, like Matthew Weiner, clearly had somebody in his organization that had literally spent time in advertising. Yeah, because. You know, the, the, the drama aside and the drinking and philandering and all that aside, which is probably more era-specific than advertising-specific, but mm -hmm. the, the nuts and bolts of the client-agency relationship, the dynamics inside an advertising agency was really true to form. 
whereas most movies and TV shows are really, I can tell instantly that whoever's writing about being in an ad agency has never spent one day in an ad agency. But yeah. that was pretty true to form. Yeah. And it just looked nice, too, didn't it? I mean, you mentioned um, yeah. the humor, uh, which I enjoyed, and, and, and it looked nice. And, and um, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a show. I, must, I, th- I still think about, you know, I wonder what whatever happened to Peggy Olson. I know. You know, and, one of the great one of the great characters in that show, by the way. Mm-hmm. I uh, just out of interest, the the show when it ended auctioned off a lot of the props. Oh yeah, yeah. And I purchased a whole stack of Peggy Olson business cards <laughs> because Matthew Weiner, which is interesting, yeah. he, he was such a, a fanatic for detail yeah. that. Even on somebody's desk, like Peggy Olson's desk, she would have, you know, letterhead that had, you know, uh, uh, st- st- uh, the agency name on the top of it. Yeah. And, like everything was real. If you pulled out a drawer, there was actually letterhead in there, although the, the camera would never catch that. Anyway, she had business cards on her desk. So I bought those business cards because I thought Peggy was such a great character, especially a woman trying to break through in advertising in the 60s. She was the epitome of that. So I have her business cards. Yeah, one, I w- of, one of which is framed on my wall. Oh, that's that sounds like the coolest thing. The um, just before the show ended, there was well, I forget the name of the museum there in Queens. Um, uh, they had um, a Mad Men exhibit, and so I went wow. to go see that. Uh, and then uh, they had Don Draper's office. Oh, really? That's yeah, very cool. And uh, it, there was like thirty seconds as I was staring at it, where it was almost like going to church or something like that. You know. <laughs> Well, that's a, it's a classic show. Yeah. And, uh, I think a lot of people loved it. The the last episode where it left a lot of people uh, generated a lot of a lot of chit chat about him coming up with that with that great Coca Cola spot. But yeah. yeah, I loved it. I just loved it. Yeah, it's been uh, such fun chatting again. I've really enjoyed your your this new book, My Biggest Mistake. Congratulations and good luck with it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The website for more is at terryoreilly.ca. The book is called My Biggest Mistake, Epic Fails and Silver Linings. It's published by Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Its author, uh, Terry O'Reilly. Join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.